boys. So for quite a while, we've been working through the book of James. Um, tried to break it up periodically and go on different topics. And I know sometimes that may feel like a sledgehammer um, going through that book. Um, but believe it or not, I think this will be our last message on it, at least going through it consecutively. So we are made it to James chapter 5 and verse 19 and 20. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. So what I'd like to try to elaborate on this morning is a real fun topic, church discipline. Uh, Discipline. Uh, Sometimes we hear that expression, church discipline, and we immediately jump to exclusions. It's one of my dad's sayings, is jumping to exclusions rather than jumping to conclusions. Is that all we mean by church discipline is casting people out of the church? Um, short answer is no, um, but let's, let's try to build up to that. What does the word discipline mean? Literally, it means to teach someone something. Okay? A disciple is a follower of a teacher. That follower is to be learning something. Um, and our English word, the root word for that, you know, the Latin that the word discipline comes from, means instruction or knowledge. And the root word of that one means to learn. Okay? So the central theme in all this is, is learning. Okay? So church discipline is the teaching of church members to be followers of the church's leader. Guess what? That ain't me. All right? The head of this church is Jesus Christ. Amen. So we are to teach what it means to be a follower of Jesus. How do we do that? We look at his revealed word and try to apply that. Okay? So does it, does it just mean excluding from the church? No. No, no. It's a teaching process. So where does church discipline start? Does that start in conference after there's been a problem? No. It starts right here. Literally where I'm standing. In the pulpit. It starts with teaching. There are two big kind of categories of teaching that I have to do. One we'll say, we'll describe it as principle. These are the doctrines of things that are true. Who God is. Who has He revealed about Himself. What has He done? Salvation. All this, I mean, this is all doctrine... But this is the principle. These are all true. And then the harder thing for me and you is the practice. Okay, what does that mean for me now? How do I take that and follow Christ? As I want to be his disciple, I want to learn to follow him. Okay, these things are true. I I can learn those and have a head knowledge of it, but if I don't take it down to me and my life day to day, then it's just kind of staying up here in head knowledge. We're not really being a disciple. We're not really following him okay so i've got to teach both principle the things that are true is revealed in god's word and then the practice of how do you actually apply that what does that look like in our life now there are a lot of different ways to teach um there's a whole study on you know methodologies of teaching in the world it's called pedagogy right how do i teach well i teach on based on how scripture teaches me to teach Right, it's a pretty good place to start. So I want you to go to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, 
And I'm going to look at four different ways that I am to teach. Titus 2 and 1 starts with speaking. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Okay, what is speaking? Well, that's that's talking. That's uttering. That's preaching. That can be formal. I'd say this is a fairly formal setting. That could be informal when I'm in your homes or we're having lunch or we're talking over coffee or on the cell phones or texting. All those things I should be teaching. Just anything else I want? Sound doctrine, right? That which is right, wholesome, true. Now, is sound doctrine limited to just those principal things about who God is and what He did? You read the rest of the chapter. This whole chapter is about application. It's that practical life of living a godly life. You learn those things about God and then you do things to glorify Him. Okay? But the first thing is speaking, teaching. Alright? What next? If you jump down to verse 7, young Titus is given the admonition from Paul, Titus 2 and 7, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works. Okay? It's not just enough to speak it. You've got to demonstrate it. That's part of, part of my job, is that I'm supposed to be your way to look at these things that I'm teaching about and see how is he applying them, modeling it, demonstrating it, showing myself a pattern of good works. Does that mean I'm going to be perfect? No. But overall, the course of my life should be a pattern that you should see time after time after time that I'm trying to live out what I'm teaching so that you can look at it. Okay? Modeling it. Given the sound application, what does that look like in my own life? This own sin-cursed life, what does it look like? Right? Y'all ever told your children to do something and you weren't afflicted with doing that yourself? Do we get very far? Right? The do as I say, but not as I do model doesn't, doesn't work, right? Kids can see through that hypocrisy pretty quickly. I know that church members are the same way. We have to live out what we're teaching. Okay? What else? Are we just speaking? We're just modeling it? Or is there more? If you go to the end of the chapter, down in verse 15, you have this expression. These things speak. All right, we talked about that one. And exhort and rebuke with all authority. Where's the authority come from? Because whatever you're saying is sound doctrine coming from the Word. Not because it's my opinion or what I believe or my experience. This is the word. That's the authority. So I'm speaking. I'm teaching. I'm modeling, as we said before. And the next thing that get there is exhorting. All right? That's a great preacher word. Boys, what in the world does exhort mean? That means I'm inviting you to do it too. All right? It's an invitation. It's a call. Sometimes it's, it's begging. All right? Apply it <laughs> in your life. I can teach. I can model it. But then the next step is on you, right? But I need to be affirmatively calling you to that, not just saying, well, here it is. Right? But inviting you to take that step, to apply it, all right? To charge, to invoke. Calling those that are listening to take these things that you've learned, that you've now seen me demonstrate, and apply it in your life. Okay? And then what comes after that? It says rebuke, all right? I'm going to give you a broader category there. So we've got speaking or teaching, we've got modeling or demonstrating, we've got giving a call to action or application, and I'm going to say give feedback, okay? There's two kinds of feedback. Have you ever given feedback to anybody on a performance review or a quiz or whatever? Generally, you can get negative feedback, 
and positive feedback, right? You want to have both the encouragement for the areas where you're growing and then also feedback on the areas where you still need to grow. So rebuking would be an example of negative feedback. Of Okay, I've taught you. I've demonstrated you. I've called it to apply. Here's the areas where it's still falling short. That's not a fun phase, right? Often in our experience, we jump right to there. We haven't done the legwork beforehand of introducing the issue, living it out ourselves, because, guys, we can't rebuke anybody for things that we're not doing yet. So introducing it, living it out, inviting them to go forward, and then giving the admonitions of here's an area where we're still not there. So that would be rebuking. The other side of the coin, the positive side of the coin, is positive encouragement. Hebrews 10.24 talks about provoking one another unto good works. Now we can provoke one another a lot, right? That's our human nature, and we generally use that in a negative sense. But that just means to incite, to encourage, to provoke one another to good works. So if you see somebody that you've been laboring with, or I've been laboring with, and I see that they're taking this lesson that I've given, that I've been modeling, and they've been applying it, and it's not perfect yet, but you can see that there's growth. I need to continue to encourage, right? You ever had those really strict teachers where all they do is just kind of come down on you, and you got that red pen, it just bleeds on it, you never hear a positive word? Do you real feel, you feel real excited to go take a test there? You kind of hate it, you just want to avoid it and get out of there? Even their criticism becomes you just kind of, whatever, I can't take that anymore. Versus that teacher that loved you, because there are teach- I've had teachers that just love me. I mean, I was public schools. So I was blessed um, to have that experience where there was those who just genuinely loved me. Did they give me harsh feedback? Yeah, at times. But they also showed me the areas that they cared and built me up in the process. Right? That's what we're going for. Right? That's the teaching that I want to uh, emulate and to set an example for. All right. So if you if you want to think in terms of a modern teacher, you think about how a chapter in a textbook is laid out. What do they do first? They introduce a topic, right? Then they give the example of demonstrating it, right? And then in uh, Elliot's book, they use the phrase "your turn to play," right? The application, all right? Apply it, right? And then there's feedback. There's a quiz or there's a test or something where you try, and then the teacher gives you feedback. So you've got intro, demonstrate, apply it, and feedback, both positive and negative, to encourage you. All right, so here's the kicker. It starts here in the pulpit. Does it stop here? No. Husbands? Fathers? Church members? We all have this duty to teach. Okay? Husbands, instructions, or if if your wife has a question in church, it doesn't say, go to the pastor first. It says, go to you first. Right? And we've got to be ready to answer. So we've got to be studying in the Word and growing ourselves. We've got to, in order to introduce that topic, we've got to know about it. And then we've got to apply it. And then we can call our wife to come along with us. Right? And same thing for parents. Our kids see through it. We can tell them, well, you need to speak to me respectfully. Well, am I speaking respectfully to others? I mean, just, I can give you a litany of examples, but we have to be having that discipline within ourselves so that we can then encourage and teach others. Okay? So is there any you know, examples between members within members? Yeah. Go back to Titus 2 and verse 3. 
Uh, it starts off with aged men, be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith and charity and patience. The aged women likewise, it means all those things too, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness. All right, so they're modeling the behavior, right? Not false accusers, not given much wine, teachers of good things. That they may teach the young women to be sober, love their husbands, love their children, to be discreet, chaste, good, obedient at home, uh, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. All right, so you've got all those things that they're going to be showing, introducing, modeling this behavior, inviting someone to come along with them and, and, and participate, and then giving that feedback. Right? It's all wrapped up there. Does it just go that one way? From older to younger? No, it can go the other way too. Go over to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Because guess what? There's always going to be areas in our life where we need more growth and someone is farther along the journey. 1 Timothy 5 and 1 says, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters, with all purity. Okay. This word rebuke here is unique. This is the only time this Greek word appears in all of Scripture. It's a compound word. The first means uh, upon, putting something upon. The other one means to pound flat. Y'all ever had somebody pound you flat? (laughs) It's not a pleasant experience, right? So here it is. It's anticipating that the person doing the uh, calling out of a behavior that's not right, saying, you're not going to go up with a hammer and pound them over the head. But rather you're to entreat them, call them, to invite them, to exhort them the same way that you would to your own, own father. Right? Are fathers perfect? By no means. <laughs> but even when you see your father in error, you can still come to him gently and in meekness and humility and address that. Right? So here it's, it's anticipating a younger is going to be teaching an elder, you know, giving that feedback. Not with a hammer, but gently, with humility and meekness. The younger younger men as brothers, elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters. So I think there's a there's a good example for us teaching and encouraging one another. The kicker in that is not jumping down to that rebuking stage if we haven't done the legwork on teaching a subject. Because it is really unreasonable for me to come to you and say you really stink at calculus, and I haven't taught you all the things that are required to get to calculus. Right? That's, that's me as a, as a teacher. I'm kind of being unreasonable. Right? So teaching slowly, gently, with patience, allowing folks time to grow. And guess what? I don't know about you, but the first time I learned something, generally it doesn't stick permanently. I learn it over and over again and try again and figure out what happens and then fail and get better. That's kind of my learning process. You may be different. But allowing that grace in others as they grow. But all we're talking about here is church discipline, the instruction of what it means to be a follower of Christ. There aren't hammers involved on this, and it's not just rushing to push you out of the church. That's not going to teach you the best. Right? So, given that context, I want us to go back to James chapter 5 and look at it. See what it says. James chapter 5, verse 19. Brethren, are we talking to the world at large? No. No. We're talking to the church. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth. All right, so 
Who's heir? Anyone within the church. Heir means to, to roam, whether that's from safety, whether that's from walking a virtuous life, whether that's from truth. You could have erring in the principal doctrine. You can have erring in the practical, the application. Any of us are subject to it. So if anyone within the church um, is erring, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, right? Is that one say, and if the pastor convert him? To say if the deacon converts him? To say, you know, just the husband or just the close family member? Or there's, it's a broad term. It can be any one of us. There's, there's a duty and a responsibility for us to hold each other accountable in love. Again, not to bring the hammer, but to see the danger and call it out. You can see when you've got that relationship with someone that you're studying one another, which we're called to do, to see when some is starting to depart from that path and intervening soon. Right? And teaching, gently, admonishing. Um, so it says, if any of us, because we're all subject to error, if any of you do err and one convert him, that word convert just means to revert again, to come, to turn around, then there's two things that'll happen. So you've got one who's been going away on a bad path, one who, some another member of the church, intervenes, teaches, and the result of that is they turn around. There's two things it says it happens. Let him know, so this is an encouragement for you to take that step. Let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall do two things. One, save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. Okay? If I convert somebody who's lost the truth and error, whether that's in principle, the doctrines about who God is and about salvation, or whether the application of that Am I saving them from hell? No. Y'all know that. This is talking about delivering them from trouble here. Okay? To save means to deliver, to heal, to preserve. That soul, that means literally it means breath, but the life. Okay? And that death, that literally means death, but figuratively it's also a separation. Okay? Why are, why are we talking about death in the context of sin? Uh, if you go back to James chapter 1, we remember looking at the source of our, our lust. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when that lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished or completed, bringeth forth death. Okay? Death is the natural end result of sin. Um, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Romans 1.32, it gave a whole litany of foul behaviors and these people who knew that those who were engaging in such things were worthy of death and yet they were rejoicing in them. Okay? And so, we're not talking about your eternal security here. We're talking about a child of God who strayed and when one converts him, one who leads him back, he is avoiding a multitude of of miseries here below. You will lose when you're wrapped up in sin, child of God. You can't enjoy sin the same way that you did before. When you were uh, unregenerate, before you were born again, you were up to your eyeballs in it. That was what you knew, and that's what you did. You can't enjoy it the same way when you're born again. It may be for a time or a season, but it, uh, it, it hurts. It does. And 
ultimately you will realize that you have lost that joy of your relationship with your father. You get are getting farther and farther away from him. He's not moving. It's you by those sins that you're allowing to just uh, manifest themselves in your life. That's why you see over in James 4, 4. I know we looked at this before, but it says ye, James 4 and verse 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses. That's really strong language. Right? You are cheating on God. Know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. If you want to be a friend of this world, you are in a source of hatred with God. That's a separation. Right? Whosoever there be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth within us lusteth to envy? That your carnal self, it lusts. It lusts for things. It lusts to envy. You want what other people have? But... He giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. So when you are on your way away from God, when you're doing and wrapped up in those sins where you've left the truth, what you're saying is, I know better than God. My pride is lifted up and said, My way is better. And so when you're turning back, you have to have that humbling of where I recognize, God, you're in control. You're sovereign. Your way is better. Your thoughts, your ways are higher than mine, and I submit to them. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. That's what it's talking about. Being saved from that scenario, that soul from death, that's that separation, that's that anguish where you are making God your enemy in your daily life. Right. So, as an encouragement to you as a member of, well, do I say anything? I see this issue. Do I say anything? Well, yes, you do. Do you come down with a hammer? No, you don't. Gently, slowly. I'm not saying to speak in riddles, um, but to be as patient and as um, loving as you can. The second thing it says, save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. Okay. Hide. Well, hide means cover. Oh, wait. Is this this a cover-up? You hear a lot of scandals within churches now that they're cover-ups. What do we mean by that? Well, that's, that's avoiding dealing with the consequences of sin. Where you're sin that is, has hurt others and you're trying to hide it, to put it away, to avoid the consequences. That's not at all what we're talking about here. Okay? How do I know that? Well, let's look at some other verses that, that talk about this. All right, 1 Peter 4, 7 and 8. All right, so just over one book. 1 Peter 4, verses... 7 and 8. But, uh, but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, watch unto prayer, and above all things have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Alright, well we've got the how. Charity covers a multitude of sins. Well, you can, this concept shows up first back in Proverbs, so let's go look at some of those just to kind of round out our understanding here. Proverbs, let's go to 10. Proverbs 10 and verse 12. 
Hatred stirreth up strifes, but love covereth all sins. Okay, and again, Proverbs 12, 16. A fool's wrath is presently known, but a prudent man covereth shame. Again, over in 17 and 9, seeing a theme here. Proverbs 17 and 9. He that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth a matter separateth very friends. Got this covering idea. Love and prudence. Going into the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Context here is the biblical definition for charity or love. And in verse 7, it says, Charity beareth all things. You know what that word beareth could also be translated as? To roof over, to cover, to silently or impatiently endure. All right, so how do, you, how do you put all that together? Well, here's my, my understanding of it. There is one who has erred from the truth, and they have been gone after, taught, and they've returned. Not only have you prevented this continued misery going forward, now in your love, you are going to cover and not bring up those mistakes again. You're not going to continue to beat them over the head with it. You're going to let your love lay it over it and move forward. Does that make sense? Is there going to be times when we have to be rebuked and admonished because we haven't done what's right? Yes. But after we've repented and we've turned from that and we're laying it aside, we're not going down that path anymore, the love we have for one another lays that covering on it and you leave it there. Does that make sense? Hatred stirreth up strife, but that love is what's going to cover those sins. Because guess what? We've all got them. <laughs> Right? If you're in the church long enough, you're going to have issues because the church is a collection of sinners. Right? It's just like a marriage. A collection of sinners, two of them. Right? <laughs> it's true. That's why we need daily grace. Um, and so don't expect us to be perfect. We will one day. We'll be free. Be freed from sin. Right? Be able to worship the Lord perfectly. So we're going to leave that... When that soul is converted from the error of his way, leave those sins covered, hiding a multitude of sins. Now, in the context of discipline, I want to be clear that I don't believe the goal in discipline is to publicly shame or embarrass or upbraid somebody. There are two exceptions to that. Okay? First exception is found in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. The whole context of this is talking about elders, but it says, Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. So if there's an elder who's been accused of something, there needs to be two or three witnesses before you entertain it. Verse 20 says, Them that sin rebuke before all, that others may fear. Now, if you take that verse out of context... You may say, well, anyone that sins, you need to bring them before the church and bring that hammer down. In context, it's talking about pastors, talking about bishops, talking about teachers. Um, 
that as leaders of the church, when we talked about James, be wary about being masters because we'll have a greater condemnation. Well, in this public, very public platform, if I sin, I need to be rebuked before all that everyone may fear. Okay? So I would say that is, that is one exception. I think the other shows up in Matthew um, chapter 17. Um, and that is when you have had a private trespass, that you have followed the pattern where you've tried to go to that individual to resolve it. Matthew 18, excuse me. Yeah. Matthew 18, go to that individual, just you and them, and you have not gained your brother through that. And then you take a couple more, not there to be on your side or to bully anybody, but just to be witnesses to establish it. And then if they're still not, to take the matter to be before the church. This is a judgment between two brethren, and let the church decide. And whatever the church decides, that's where it lies. But it says, But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen and a publican. This is when you get to that final step in discipline of the church. That you have one who is unrepentant and unwilling to submit to the church. The church has been given authority. And it's not just based on what we want or what we like, but the authority of saying, this is what God's Word says the righteous thing to do is. And then we as all members have to submit to that. And so it's not the underlying trespass that causes this individual to be a heathen and publican. It's the unwillingness to humble themselves and to submit to the authority of the church. It's the unrepentance. Okay? And that shows up over in 1 Timothy chapter 19 when you had one who was had erred from the truth and the Apostle Paul had called them out on it, but it was to no avail. 1 Timothy 1 and 19, "...holding faith and good conscience, which some, having put away concerning the faith, have made shipwreck. There are some who have erred, whether in principle or practice, I'm not sure. But these two are named as Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme." So they were teaching something that was in error. They were unrepentant about it. Paul cast them out. Was it just so they'd be out? but that they would learn, learn not to blaspheme. See this concept again over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 4 and 5. We know that there was some uh, gross fornication that going on within this church, and so Paul told them, there's what you do. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So the destruction of the flesh, that destruction really means ruin, punishment. The destruction of the flesh. The reason was the unwillingness to submit to the righteousness that the church should be saying, and this is the standard. Now here in Corinthians, the church was at fault too. They were lifted up with pride and weren't willing to say, this is wrong. And so they were in error um, just as he was. But we have to. We have to submit to the authority of the church to the extent that this church is, and the church is required to use that to say, this 
is the righteousness of God as laid out in His Word. It's not my preference. It's not my opinion. It's not my tradition. All those things are not worth anything. But based on that authority of His Word. So that's what it means over there in Ephesians 5 and in verse 21. It says, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Not just a generic submitting one to another, but it's in the fear of God. It's because... This is what God has set out. This is the role that He has designed His church in. This is the authority He has given to His church. Okay? If you look over in Romans chapter 10, what is a, a description of the heathen? Those that you know said, let him be a heathen and a publican. That means an outsider, one who is just in the world. What does that mean? In Romans 10 and verse 3, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness. This is a description of a heathen. And going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Right? That's what we are doing. We are submitting, we're humbling ourselves before the righteousness of God. Where I see in my life where I've got something that's not consistent with God's word, I've got to submit. I've got to lay down and say, God's righteous word knows better than I and I need to follow that. Whereas these are on the outside, they're ignorant of God's righteousness. They go about to establish their own righteousness. Well, I'm a pretty good fellow. I'm better than you and you. I can see that because of whatever arbitrary standard they come up with. And they don't want to, and they can't, submit themselves under the righteousness of God. That's very different than what is described for you and me when we're born again as a new creature. Go back to Ephesians chapter 5. No, 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in what? In righteousness. That's your new man. You're created in righteousness and true holiness. And then you get the rest of that chapter is application of applying that, of putting off the old man and putting on the new man, putting on that righteousness. Okay? So what is church discipline about? It's about teaching. And it's about learning. Where we introduce the truths of God's Word, the righteousness that's revealed in there. Where we model it in our own life. And then encourage others, apply them, and you know, call them to it itself to, to apply it to themselves. And then we continue to lovingly give feedback. No one's going to get it perfectly the first time. There's going to be growth. That's, I mean, that's why we're, you know, we're described, you know, as producing fruit of the spirit. Right? Y'all know any fruit that just is there? It's a process. It takes time. And so, giving them feed, feedback to one another, positive and negative. All right. But and ultimately, the hope, even when you've had to do that highest level where you've had to get to that last step of you're unrepentant, you're not willing to submit to the church or to God's word or to righteousness, and we have to turn you out for now. The goal is not to turn them out. That's not the end. The goal is that they would be delivered, that they may learn. And then what about after that? If they've learned and they've repented and come back. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, Brethren, again, talking to the church, if any man be overtaken in a fault... Ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest also, lest thou also be tempted. There's a restoration. Right? Do you know that's what happens in the second letter to Corinthians? It was that the punishment was sufficient. The man had repented. 
allow him back. A reconciliation to restore. Because we're so great and we've now you know, decided that you've had enough time out. No. In meekness and humility, knowing that the reason we do this is because we love one another. And the reason we love one another is because God loved us and He gave us that love for our brothers and sisters in the church and desiring that they, like we, would be the best followers and disciples, a follower of our leader. Well, who's our leader? It's Jesus. What does He care about? It's not just the arbitrary things that you come up with in your own head. Well, my Jesus thinks this. If your Jesus didn't write it down in His book, I don't care what you're about to say. You're just making it up. Well, my God wouldn't do that. Well, have you read His Word? <laughs> Often they'll say something really dumb after that. With my God wouldn't do... Well, did you know that He's already done that? And so all of this has to be rooted and grounded and disciplined, learning from His Word. Can I, as your pastor, teach you everything in His Word? No. In any given month, how, how many times are we together? You come Sunday morning, it's what, four times a month. You stick around for the afternoon service, and say, we got Wednesday nights, it's at 12. Comes to the, you know, the men's cleanup day, we'll have a little fellowship time, was that 13? 13? Maybe somewhere 13 to 15 hours out of your whole month that I'm formally teaching. That's a very small percentage of your life. And so it requires self-discipline. I can point you on the right track. I can answer questions. But I can't do the hard work for you. If you want to be a follower of Christ, you got to get to know Him. And it's not just this imaginary caricature that the world talks about. What is revealed in His Word? Well, I don't know how to study His Word. Let's talk. Have you started by trying to read it? (laughs) There are tools that you can use, word searches if you're interested in a topic. That's fine. We We can study. We can give each other tips and techniques and encouragement. But it's the drive that's got to come from you and the ownership for you of that. I have publicly confessed that Jesus Christ is my Lord and I want to follow Him. I've done that in baptism if you're already a member of the church. And I'm saying that he's the leader of my life. Okay. Have we taken that next step of, I'm going to own that and really dig into his word and see what he expects. What am I doing that glorifies him? That's great. Praise God for that. What am I doing that doesn't? David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, murdered Uriah, right? Nathan came, the prophet came, and rebuked him because he gave great occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme God's name. You're walking around saying that you are a follower of God, that I'm one of God's children, that I am a servant of Him. Am I acting how one of the king's children should act? Am I giving Him glory in my life? And sometimes it can, you know, Sometimes we think in terms of big sins. Well, maybe I'm not enwrapped in some of these really gross, vile, disgusting things, but maybe I've just got a real sorry attitude. I'm ungrateful. I'm bitter. I wish this would change, or this would change, or this would change. And like Brother Parrish prayed about this morning, you know, what inheritance have you already been given? The biggest. 
You get to be with God in glory. He's gone to prepare a place for you. What do you really have to complain about? Minor friction, minor disturbances here below. Can they be upsetting? Absolutely. But they're a lot more upsetting when that's all you're focused on. That's all I see. Instead of dwelling in the truth of how big God is and how long He's loved you and will continue to love you and these precious promises that are here in His Word. He's promised never to leave you or forsake you. He's promised that you will confess your faults. He's faithful and just to forgive you your faults. And that all your sins have already been paid for. Right? When we sing victory in Jesus, we say this, I say this a lot. We're not just saying that. That there's a real victory that's already been obtained. Right? When we sing it is finished, it's finished. It's not a comma. It's not a question mark. It's not an asterisk. You have something to rejoice in. And yet so often we don't. We get lazy. I get lazy. I allow myself to get sucked into whether it's a TV show or news. Good Lord. The news will... That was so hard because what's it designed to do? It's an entertainment product. It's designed to have ratings. They want you to come back to their websites and to their things so that your eyeballs are on there so they can sell you more ads. The whole thing is geared to sucking you into it. Not to edify you. Right? And yet we're told to think on the good things. That which is pure and just and right and lovely. Anything good report? Where's the best example of that? Always going to be found. In that thing that sometimes you struggle to pick up. Self-discipline. Making it a daily habit. Not just once a week or once a month or whatever. Disciplining of self. So, here's the hard part. Sometimes we talk about church discipline and you think in terms of others. Others need to grow. Others need to learn. Guess who's part of the church? Me. And you. We don't have to wait for someone else to teach us. You've already been born again with the Holy Spirit. You've got the best teacher already within. And you've been given His revealed what in the world. You got the tools. Go use them. Not so you can be lifted up with knowledge and heady and look down on others. Well, I know more. I've read my Bible 17 times. I'm going to look down, aren't you? Because you've only read it once. No! Right? We kind of missed the point if that's our attitude. If anything, the more we learn, the more we should be kind of lower in ourselves and more grateful to God. Because we see the truth of how good He is and how sorry we are, and yet He loved us anyway. And also see the hope that I can continue to serve Him better today than I did yesterday. And know that I don't have to beat myself up for yesterday. That the love of Christ covered that sin too. The same way that it covers the sins for my other brothers and sisters, it covers our own. It's been paid for. Don't drag those chains around. Well, I can't serve God today because I know what I did yesterday or the day before. It's a sorry excuse. How do you serve today? And if you're in a role of authority as a husband, as a father, as a parent, 
We need to be governing ourselves. Me as a pastor, oh, I need to have a lot of self-discipline on this. Because that second thing about modeling it, that's important. I can come over and I can have Bible study with you every night of the week and I can introduce things to it and I can call you to it. But if you're looking across at me and knowing he doesn't do that, what credibility do I have? Not much. How does it say you shouldn't take advice when you know someone else is telling you the right thing if they don't do it? No. You should try and take it. It's just harder to swallow. But you can take it because it comes to the authority of Scripture. I'm not saying wait until you're perfect in all aspects before you encourage someone else to try and teach. No. But do do an evaluation. Examine self. I want, you to, I want you to be at church Sunday. I want you to show up and I want you to care. I want you to be excited. Well, do I show up every Sunday? Am I there? Do I care? Am I excited? You can give a lot of examples. You can think about it. Book of James.